Welcome to the Behavioral Health Collective podcast, a community of behavior analysts who are passionate about sharing evidence-based practices from the perspective of behavior science. We connect families and educators to information that promotes robust behavioral health in the home, community, and classroom. We are behavioral health practitioners who empower parents and caregivers by sharing behavioral resources that are current and evidence-based. At the Behavioral Health Collective, we set families and educators up for success by promoting meaningful and lasting behavioral health and skill development in the children or young people they work with. Thanks so much for listening in today. I'm Erica Ng, the founder of the Behavioral Health Collective podcast. If you're a parent of a child diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder or an educator working with a child with this diagnosis, chances are you've had some moments that are challenging for both you and that child. Today's guest, Amelia Bowler, understands this from firsthand experience. She's a behavior analyst and a parent of a child with an ODD diagnosis. Amelia has written an incredible book called A Parent's Guide to Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Although this book is specialized, it also has so much content that's applicable to really any child, regardless of having a diagnosis or not. Amelia is a very compassionate behavior analyst who's committed to sharing evidence-based practices while having a deep level of empathy for the challenges that parents and young people are going through. Amelia also has a new book coming out in 2022 that's geared towards teachers of students with an OTT diagnosis, so definitely stay tuned for that. Regardless of whether your child has this diagnosis, or maybe an ADHD diagnosis, or no diagnosis at all, I think Amelia's insights can certainly be helpful. We talk about some highlights from her book and where to start if you're finding yourself trapped in a cycle of challenging behaviors and challenging dynamics in your family. So without further ado, let's get to chatting with Amelia. So Amelia, could you just define for listeners what oppositional defiant disorder is, just so we're totally clear? Ah, that is the question. Um, Well, if your child has a diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder, uh, that's a it's a label that's given by a medical professional like a psychologist or a doctor and it sounds like we know what it is it sounds quite easy to understand because it's a disorder so we assume that means we know there's something wrong with your child and it says oppositional and defiant which we know what that means it it we assume that it means whatever you tell your child to do your child will do the opposite mm. um in reality that's not a real thing. Mm. <laughs> Just to be really blunt about mm-hmm. it, there's no such yeah. thing as, as children who can't understand the word yes. Mm. Um, but there are relationships that, that aren't working. And mm. there are situations that are hard where people don't agree. So what we've done is we've taken a whole category of disagreeing with adults, and we've decided that this is a pathological behavior, and we're going to find mm. a label for it. Mm. Um, So in order, I mean, obviously disagreeing with adults is something that all children will do. So Mm. that's a bit of a problem. There's a bit of an objective, there's a call that Mm -hmm. the physician or the psychologist has to make. Is this more difficult than than your average child who's going to disagree with you a certain percentage of the time? We don't know what that percentage is. There is no such thing as a a normal (laughs) um, compliance rate Mm -hmm. uh, because it'll change depending on the child's age your family situation, the mm-hmm. child's gender, like this is not a norm referenced uh, set of behaviors. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we just don't have that. Mm-hmm. But if you as a parent and your care provider are under the impression that this is more difficult than 
than usual, you may get this diagnosis. And if you look it up in the manual, it will give you a list of qualities that your child probably has. And if your child has some of them, around half, then that's enough to qualify. Mm. Okay. So I'm, it's not a clear answer at all. It's very subjective. Mm -hmm. It yeah. really depends on culture. Mm -hmm. And I, I really want to get that out there. If a parent is, is told they're ordered, very next thing they do is is either blame their child or blame themselves, and that's mm. not a productive place to start working from. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I, you mentioned um, in your book, there's a really powerful quote about um, the most uh, sorry most defiant and oppositional behavior happens when a child's environment collides with his or her abilities. And I love that you're reframing ODD to, you know, think, think about it as there being some skill deficits there and a mismatch in yeah relationships and expectations, like with the environment and that, and that child. And I think it's so important that you mentioned relationships in there. And it makes me think of school systems. And what I've heard so commonly is this understanding that a child with an ODD diagnosis wants to defy, wants to like be bad. They want to like get the teacher, get the aid, um, they want to behave in this oppositional manner. But I think you really counter that in your book to have a deeper understanding of what is actually going on for that child. And, you know, just thinking about how subjective and diverse this diagnosis can be, could you also just explain a little bit about the subtypes of ODD? And what are some of those main like skill deficits or hallmarks of those subtypes? Oh, sure. Um, yes. Well, I'm glad that that we're not really, you know, we can't really pin this down to just one type of child. But um, when you take a large group of these children and you lump them together, it's really hard to get any like clear correlations mm. in, in the research. But uh, what researchers have tried to do to to sort this out a little bit, um, like maybe these kids aren't exactly the same. Um, let's see if we can based on which criteria they match with, let's see if we can tease this out a little bit. So mm. the subtypes, you know, these might not be given to parents, but um, if you look at the symptoms, they sort of form three categories. One category is, it's very emotional, it's very sensitive, it's very expressive, um, and there's lots of ups and downs. Mm. So you'll get outbursts and tears and aggression, um, the next category is more about conflict, but it's not as emotional. You'll have, mm. <laughs> I, I hope you've met one of these kids because they're fine. They're fantastic. I, they always remind me of a sort of rhinoceros approach. Like mm. I'm going to do it. I'm mm -hmm, going to do it. Mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. care what you're saying. I'm just going to yeah. do it. And yeah. they're very cheerfully telling you that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not a stormy yeah. conversation. It's just like very matter of fact. Yep. No, no, no. You don't understand. Mm -hmm, <laughs> you don't mm -hmm. want me to. Yeah, okay. But I'm, I'm to. still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and then the third um, group of symptoms is more about, ooh, this is, this is maybe the hardest one for parents to deal with. It's, you know, often when our kids or students are acting in a way that we don't like, traditionally, mm -hmm. we introduce some kind of disincentive, like a punishment or a consequence. When kids turn it around on us and they mm. start punishing our behavior mm -hmm. in very planned and specific ways, that's called vindictiveness mm. in the research literature. It's 
it's a very hard thing to deal with. It, it's not common to every single child diagnosed with ODD, but but it is something that, that is mentioned in the diagnosis. Is your mm-hmm. child trying to get back at you? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for describing that. I think that's just helpful as we as we go through the following questions, um, just to understand kind of the it's a wide diagnosis. There's so many different kids. And like you said, even one child, maybe, you know, who's diagnosed with that like headstrong um subtype is like probably quite different from the next kid with the same diagnosis. So I think that's really important for us to understand. Yeah. And and I really want to do a good job of answering your question. So I, I want to pick up that. On the, the question that you asked me about skill deficits, hmm. um, I think skill deficits is is a very compassionate approach, and I, I support it, and I'm glad that that I read Dr. Ross Green's work mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. like lagging skills and unmet needs. Mm-hmm. I think it is really really helpful, um, but I do I don't want to paint all children with this diagnosis as having a deficiency, sure. because mm-hmm. when I'm speaking to parents. <laughs> often, you know, they feel like their kids are running rings around them. These kids mm-hmm. are gifted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are, they're resisting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're expressing. Um, they may not, they may not wish to comply with everything that's being asked of them, mm-hmm. or they may not be able to, and that's not always the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's such a good way to look at it that not, I mean, again, it just reinforces that idea that it's such a, a wide um, subjective diagnosis that so mm. many kids are very different. Yeah, that's a really good point that they're not, they don't all have skill deficits. Many of them are highly skilled. Mm. One thing that, that really helped to change my perspective was the the writing of Dr. Mona Delahook. She mm. published a book a year or two ago called Beyond Behaviors, and mm. she described uh, the concept of neuroception. It's based in polyvagal theory. And as a parent, that was another way it was another lens for me to look mm. at my child's behavior because I, you know, had all my traditional behavior training and I was saying, mm-hmm. okay, I'm looking at the contingencies. I'm looking, I'm, an, I'm analyzing mm-hmm. the antecedents and the mm-hmm. consequences. And this makes no sense to me. Mm. Why, why are we running into the same brick wall over and over again? And, and Mona Delahook does, does a wonderful job of, of helping parents understand how stress and fear can Mm. flavor a situation and can Mm. make our best intentions really backfire. Hmm. Interesting. I think you really emphasize in the book of, you know, the parent stepping back to kind of look at the situation, you know, in a holistic manner, like what is going on there. Mm. And I, and I just want to pick up what you were talking about earlier about relationship and something you talk about is the coercive cycle in, in your book. Um, so could you describe a bit of that coercion cycle there and how it can play into the breakdown of relationship? And cause that is such a, a key part with ODD. Yes. A hundred percent. If you look at the research on ODD, this is maybe one of the things that we we understand the best. Gerald Patterson introduced it in the 80s. Can you believe like that was the mm. 80s was like 15 minutes ago. I remember yeah. the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so like a lot of this research, a lot of these definitions that we're throwing around now, yeah. they weren't around when we were kids. Like mm-hmm. our experience, mm-hmm. we're naive <laughs> to mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. glad that our kids can can grow up in a world where, where we're actually asking these questions. Anyway, mm-hmm. so Gerald Patterson try to describe what he was seeing in families that had a lot of conflict. And so what he saw was this, Mm -hmm. a parent gives a direction, a child says no, 
or resists or ignores and the parent does one of two things uh, you can insist and ask again and get louder or you can retreat hmm. if the parent retreats that sort of reinforces the child's resistance if the child backs down when the parent gets louder, that kind of reinforces the parent's forcefulness. Mm. So what's happening is the parent and the child are shaping each other's behavior. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this is like a little feedback loop, like ignore, 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 explode. Mm -hmm. And then the other side sort of quickly learns that to shape their behavior like I, I've talked to so many parents that have said, you know, my kids just don't listen to me unless I yell. Mm. That would be an example of the coercive cycle at work because yeah. the parent's behavior has been shaped. Yeah. Like being nice doesn't work, so I better yeah. be more forceful. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. as time goes on, the kids get more used to being yelled at. And so mm -hmm. they get better at ignoring or they find better ways of avoiding. Yeah. And so the parent's behavior gets more forceful. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really, really harmful because you have these two forces that are just very resourceful and you mm -hmm. got lots of time mm -hmm. yeah. and and the, this is also a relationship that these are you have a long history mm -hmm. when a child goes to school and meets like a new teacher and a new aide that's a fresh start the mm -hmm. parents have these histories following them around and they may find yeah. it very hard to to hit the reset button mm -hmm. that is a very clear example of that thank you for describing that and i'm sure um that same, I think that the school example is great too, actually, because, you know, I, we've seen students where, you know, that relationship one year is like very challenging and then September rolls around the following year and sure they've matured a bit over the summer potentially, but depending on that, you know, next year, that new relationship with that new aide or new teacher can uh, be such a good opportunity. So thanks for mentioning that to like related to the school setting too. Sure. Now you mentioned as a BCBA that a lot of the typical behavior strategies, like you said, like analyzing antecedents, analyzing the consequences and making a plan accordingly um, that we were trained to use as BCBAs and are evidence-based with most children often do not work for a child with some sort of ODD falling in that, in that realm with that ODD mm. diagnosis. So what might be something that parents should look at first or like really stop, like think about what do they need to stop doing um, that could be making things worse, actually, if they're kind of looking at it in more of a traditional approach. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to give an example that's personal to me, because mm. there there are things that, that I did with the best of intentions, like, mm. oh, this, <laughs> don't worry, I got this, I read it in a book, mm -hmm. that I really cringe when I look back on. Um, mm. And so in general, I would say to parents, like, it's really time that we rethink the always follow through rule mm. it is not worth always following through mm. this will this rule will take you to the edge and sometimes beyond uh, mm. the line of abuse mm. um yeah i just i still remember one day where my child wouldn't brush his teeth and so you know the bcba training kicks in and like all right we're going to do a prompt hierarchy you know use gestural prompt use a partial physical prompt and by the time we got to full physical prompt we had a child who was in extreme distress mm -hmm. because he feels powerless in the situation mm -hmm. and i look back and i think like why did i feel like i had to do that mm -hmm. it was it was not i really believed that if i if i like powered through if i got through that horrible resistance that the next time would be easier 
And that may not be the case. It mm. may be that there's a trust broken mm. um, the more you try to force and that mm. the resistance on the other side grows and there, that there's the, the risk of that coercive circle mm. or cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that personal example. I'm sure that would resonate with a lot of parents. And you do put a significant focus on on parents really thinking about uh, self-reflection and, you know, how am I interacting with my child? And that first part of the book um, is really about understanding ODD, but how parents need to be the first to make some changes by highlighting kind of that chicken and egg cycle between challenging behavior and parenting style. I think you mentioned that it's actually easier for the child to shape the parent's behavior than the parent to shape, shape the child's behavior. There's, I think, yeah, a research Russell study you Barclay, mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Russell Barkley's work. Uh, he he was one of the first people to to really look at ADHD um, in in a serious clinical way. And ADHD tends to overlap a lot with ODD. So he observed kids interacting with their parents mm-hmm. uh, while on stimulant meds and while not on stimulant meds, and it was amazing how much the parents' behavior changed based on what the child was doing. Hmm. Um, much less negative feedback, um, because I guess I guess our kids we're very very sensitive to our kids' behavior, hmm. and we're very sensitive to our own sort of beliefs and habits. And it's it's hard I think to 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 use fresh eyes and look at what's going on hmm. with your child without bringing hmm. everything that that we've learned and and everything we're feeling that day. Yeah. Hmm. Would you say then, you know, if a parent is kind of maybe even right now listening to this and thinking like, okay, we're kind of in this course of cycle. Um, Mm. I know you really highlight that importance of modeling emotional regulation for their child. What might be a few quick, quick wins, I guess you could say, or a few changes that a parent could make right away to kind of get, give them those bang for their buck. Um, to help them kind of get to a space where they can do that reflection and like zoom out a bit. Okay. Uh, well, we could start with something that might sound really stupid, but it's it's one of my favorite things to tell myself. It's don't just do something, stand there. Hmm. Like when we are watching something happen and we're feeling offended and mm. we feel, oh, this must not, this is not okay. This cannot be tolerated. Mm. I have to do something. Hmm. The something that we choose to do is not always what we wish we had done. Yeah, the hmm. something is not always appropriate or thought out or helpful, but it feels like I just have to. I have to respond to this somehow. Yeah, yeah. and so we almost go on automatic pilot. And if we can train ourselves to just pause hmm. <laughs> and say, you know what, this is maybe. Like if it's a situation where somebody is in actual danger, I I, I definitely don't want anyone to be physically injured by not acting. Mm -hmm. But let's say someone has just called you a very outrageous name and you remember all the times that, you know, your parents responded to you when they were offended by Mm -hmm. your behavior and you say, I'm going to deal with this right now. Mm-hmm. that's probably a bad sign. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably when you're not doing your very best parenting. Um, so if you feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do something right now, my best advice is that it's amazing what will change five minutes from now. What you think life is going to be like in five minutes mm. is 
it's very, very often wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, there's very little harm that can come from just taking a minute and thinking like, what was that? Yeah. How am I feeling about that? Mm. Sometimes not saying anything is really your most powerful weapon. That is awesome. So simple and yet easy to remember. I like that. I like that phrase. Instead Don't of just doing, do something. Yeah. Stand there. <laughs> That's so great. Don't just do something. Stand there. That's wisdom. Thank you for that. Now, once a parent has been able to focus maybe on their own emotional regulation like this, don't just do something, stand there and um, maybe working on some modeling as well for their child. What are one or two things that might be a good next step to building their relationship with their Mm. child, to like rebuilding the relationship with their child? Mm -hmm. Um, Gosh. I think one thing that's really hard to do as a parent is, is to set aside a lot. We make a lot of assumptions and we have a lot of beliefs that are not necessarily true. And even the things our kids tell us in the moment Mm. are not necessarily true when they say, Mm. I hate you. You don't like write it down. Like, okay, he now hates me. And that is, Mm. that's a fact. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily a fact. Like Mm -hmm. not everything is, is really important information. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard sometimes to take, the the information that we're getting and sort it out like this is gold Mm. this is a nugget right here i can really use this Mm. (laughs) as opposed to this is confusing or this is upsetting Mm -hmm. and it's not telling me anything Mm. um but to really rebuild our relationship with the kids we do have to be ready to set aside the things that offend us and the Mm. things that we're hurt by because we our kids can't heal those wounds that you know those sore spots they cannot Mm. compensate for the things that we didn't get (laughs) earlier Mm -hmm. in the day yeah yeah so we can't we can't expect our kids to go through like a reconciliation there we really have to be able to do that work ourselves Mm -hmm. and say you know what fresh start Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hi (laughs) can we sit together (laughs) yeah yeah simple yet meaningful coming to the table like with clean hands um would be the, I think the first step to, to reconnecting. I think in our house, we call it bringing back the love. Mm-hmm. I was reminding my kids this morning, like, I think the love's always there. It's just sometimes covered up and I can't see it. Mm-hmm. But like the sun goes behind a cloud, it's still there. Mm-hmm. I need to remember that, that my love for my kids and their love for me is, is always there. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. And, uh, and meaningful. And again, yeah, simple yet, yet profound. Now, if some families are finding themselves, you know, they've maybe even like read your book, tried a couple of things, um, and they're still really struggling. I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about your consultation services. Um, kind of what does that system look like? Now, if a family hasn't received behavior consultation from a behavior analyst before, mm-hmm. what might that look like? And at what point Maybe would a family consider getting professional help versus, sure. you know, reading your book or seeking out um, similar resources? Hmm. Okay. Well, I want to say right off the bat that the, that the process that I go through, it's, this is going to be a very general description. Like I, I definitely sure. want to be sensitive to people depending on their background, depending on their mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. like not every, not every person is going to be able to give me all the information that I'm looking for by filling out a form for or sure. by like 
talking, like yeah. explaining everything on the first day. So this is very approximate. Mm. But what I like to do is I'll send people a link and I'll ask them a few questions so they can just kind of take it at their own pace. Like fill me in on a few things. Where have you been with this? Like what's, what, what sort of other services have you looked at? What are the situations that are really bothering you the most? Then we schedule a half an hour phone call. And sometimes I get carried away and it's longer, but it's free. It's just mm -hmm. because I, I want to get a sense of, is this somebody that I think I can help? And I want mm -hmm. the family to get a sense of what would it look like to ask for help and to, what would we do together? I don't, mm -hmm. I can't ask for consent to treat somebody if they don't know me. So there's a little mm -hmm. get to know you process. Um, after that, you know, because of COVID, it's really been primarily remote, like phone-based, even for people who live locally. In the past, I have really enjoyed visiting people's homes and just watching how things play out and, and saying hello to the kids and asking their opinion on things <laughs> and, mm. uh, and modeling ways of speaking to kids when we're trying to work through a problem. That can be really useful. If I don't have that, that's okay. Um, because sometimes as parents, there's things you want to say that mm -hmm. you don't want your kids to hear. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So we spend time on the phone. Um, we try to look at specific situations, what led up to it. And if I can think of like a quick, either here's, here's a step that you may want to take that may just prevent this altogether. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I will definitely throw that out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I don't understand why it's happening, then the next step would be, let's see if we can figure out what these variables are. What if you did this differently? Would it still happen? Like sometimes mm. there's an investigative process that mm -hmm. we go through before we try to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that make and, sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really helpful to make clear to families that it's very, uh, very much tailored to their specific needs. And I think to even just understand that it's like a very conversational, relational mm. situation to, uh, yeah. to use professional services. How long would you say um, you would typically work with a family for? Um, some families, I think, want to work long term. Mm -hmm. I try to work myself out of a job as soon yeah. as possible. And I'm sure. always delighted if we can yeah. solve the problem in the first 45 minutes. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think because the work that we do is so situational, I think we just work on one little piece at a time. And mm -hmm. over time... What I'd, what I'd like to do is build up a set of skills for the parent that they can keep using in these as new situations mm -hmm, pop up. Mm -hmm. So we, we start with the specific and then we move to the general. Mm. When parents have a bit more confidence, like mm -hmm. I, I love cheerleading. I love telling parents what they do right. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they tend to not call me for a while and then maybe eight months down the line, they'll say, you know what? having this issue can you weigh in on it and mm. that's great it can be a very casual relationship mm. okay that's really good to know thank you for outlining that um okay so kind of just moving into a wrap-up here um if there was one thing you could recommend to families that are struggling maybe uh with a new diagnosis mm. for their child with ODD what would what would be a recommendation mm. I mean you've already had a lot of nuggets in this conversation but what would be like the number one thing that you would you would say from your own personal and professional experience? I would say that there are a couple things that, that will get in your way. Um, and that's number one, shame. And mm. number two, 
expectations like my child should be a certain way I should mm. be able to do this and I guess the shame and expectations go hand in hand mm. um instead I I would say that the way to move forward really starts with acceptance like this mm. is where I'm at this is where this kid is at this is how it's affecting me right now mm. but but I know that life is unpredictable and that things can change and I'm open to that. I'm mm-hmm. open to things mm-hmm. changing. The worst thing we can do is just saying, well, I'm like this and he's like this and it'll never work and he's pathological and mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. not going to get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have to explore yeah. some possibilities and, and maybe just look with some compassion on the mm-hmm. way things are right now for you and for your kid. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you just use that word compassion because I wanted to say that, that I think your approach in the book is so clearly compassionate for both the child and the parent, which is, is just so amazing. And I think makes that so accessible to families Um, and just acknowledging that, that there, you know, will be feelings of shame or, you know, should my child should be this way. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I just think it's such an accessible thing for families. Um, aside from your book, could you share um, any other resources that are helpful for families that might be struggling with yes. an ODD diagnosis? Yes. Um, well, if if you like the way I say things, <laughs> you can you can go to my website. It's ameliabehavior.com, which is behavior spelled the Canadian way usually, mm-hmm. or even just my name, ameliabowler.com should get you okay. there. Yeah. I have another book coming out next spring. It's specifically for teachers. Great. Um, so you may p- put that in your child's backpack. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, That's so funny. That's a great idea. <laughs> um, you know, there are some names of people that have that have really helped to shape my point of view. Um, and one of them that we haven't mentioned yet is um, Dr. John Gottman. He's a wonderful psychologist. Mm. And, and he wrote about building kids' emotional intelligence Mm. um so he is definitely a person that i would look up because he has a nice way of really looking at looking at the world you know as a psychologist in a very analytical way but Mm. but in a very practical way and in a very Mm. compassionate way so yeah he's he's one to look up for sure john gottman fantastic well i will put both your book and the link to john gottman in the show notes so thank you for that It was so great hearing from you, Amelia. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, both as a parent and as a professional and a behavior analyst who's working with this really unique population who I think is quite misunderstood and is very diverse. It's a broad group of kids who are so individual and unique. Um, So you mentioned your website, so that's great. I will put all of this in the show notes. You mentioned your book coming up. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention to listeners, like any workshops coming up or any other new new things for you? Things have been a little bit quiet. If you are a clinician, I would recommend Googling my name and we can, <laughs> there's a course that you can take. Um, oh, awesome. That will sort of walk you through all of the deeper, uh, more BCBA type stuff. Okay, um, fantastic. Yeah, or you know what? I I wouldn't mind just hearing from people if they have questions. Yeah, um, okay. You can contact me directly. I also paint and draw. Mm. So if you find me on Instagram, you'll see some of the things that, that I think are important, plus some watercolor paintings. Yeah, Yay. I love your art. Yeah, <laughs> so beautiful. That's fantastic. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for all of that. And um, yeah, enjoy your afternoon. Thank you again, Amelia. Take care. Take Thanks care. Bye. The 
comments and views expressed in this podcast do not constitute or replace contractual behavior analytic consultation or professional advice. Views expressed are solely the perspective of the speaker and do not represent the views or position of their colleagues, employer, or other associates. Please seek at a behavior analyst through the BACB website if you would like to receive further behavior consultation. Until next time, take care.